business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 21 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And in studio we have the one and the only <laughs> Wayne McCurry, Wayne from F&B. Thanks once again for Pleasure. joining us in studio. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank Great. Wayne, we are pressed for time, which is, I suppose, a good thing because it gives us less time to waffle and get straight to the point. Um, what I really want to pick your brain on today is to just to set the milieu for South Africa going forward. Yeah. We've come out of elections. The dust has settled. Quite frankly, in my opinion, we all, you know, the, the, the election was a tremendous success. It was another accolade in South Africa's cap that they've really, really done well and can hold free and fair elections. The outcome was, you know, predictable, you know, um, if we just, you know, excuse one or two little road bumps that we didn't expect. Mm. But besides that, it's done. The ANC has now got a clear mandate just to lead and to get things yes. going. How do you see the picture? Well, I think it's important to realize that. Obviously, and we all know this, the ANC is a, a divided organization, but the mandate given is more to the state president than to the ANC. It Correct. has gone up from the last municipal election where the ANC got 54%. So whether you support the ANC or not, it is quite clear that President Cyril Ramaphosa has got an increased position of power within the ANC. Now, I mean, we talk to lots of political analysts. They come and see us. They give us, hopefully, some insight into what's happening deep in uh, deep within the ANC organization. And the latest uh, update I got was that President Cyril Ramaphosa now enjoys a majority in the NEC, the National Executive Committee, and he also enjoys a majority within the top six. And that's a change in position from a couple of months ago where it was 50-50 split. So it is quite clear his position is enhanced. Now, whenever you talk politics, you ultimately realize that they're all politicians, okay, and they're all, they're all compromised to get outcomes. They, they, they always try and keep lots of different interest groups happy. And fundamentally, all politicians are more worried about their own success and their own tenure than actually doing the 100% right thing. Okay, so giving all of those qualifications, it seems quite clear that the state president is and will continue to act to get things right, for want of a better expression. Now, that, I suppose, takes two branches or two, two things he's trying to do. First of all, he's going to continue to act on the bribery and corruption up to a point. He doesn't want to spend his whole uh, tenure as state president fighting these battles against bribery and corruption. So it is quite clear very senior people will be charged and hopefully go to jail if found guilty in a court of law. But it won't be going down to the last official in the smallest municipality to hunt the last person. So it's not become a total purge. No. He's going to – there'll be – I mean, I don't know. Pick a number, I suppose – 10, 20, 30 very, very senior people charged via the new prosecution head they've got, via the new directorate that they've got looking specifically at this. And that's happening for two reasons. One is a symbolic reason is that, you know, 
bribery and corruption stops very quickly if you, if it's seen that senior people are going to jail because of it. Correct. I mean, that just dies. Totally. When you realize you're not going to get away with it anymore, it will just die. And secondly, I think it's, it, I think it, it, it helps the state president's own position. You know, he doesn't have to actually act against his detractors. He's just got to let the courts take and the justice system take its normal path. But as I'm sure any politician would like, he wants to put this behind him because there are bigger challenges. Correct. This is more of a legacy thing, and it's to do the right thing. And he has done a lot so far. I mean, every every big SOE that's got us into such huge trouble, all the management's changed. We know all about the commissions. We know all about that. So let's put that to the side now. Let's take the second step in this doing the right thing, and that is getting the economy back on a growth path. Now, there's obviously myriads of reasons why anything happens. You can't point it to a particular set of circumstances or even a particular person. But certainly since 2016, our economy should be doing a whole lot better than what it is. Now, the reason why I choose 2016 is up until 2015, the commodity cycle was severely depressed. And we are a commodity producer. That's, that's what we are. And just to show you how important that is in our life, in 2015, Kumba Iron Ore share price was trading at 25 rand a share in 2015. Now, with the recovery in the commodity prices, Kumba will probably earn 60 rand profit this year. So it shows you how quickly the cycle turns, and we are and subject 60 to rand per share. Per share profit, and, and the thing was trading at 25 rand a share in 2015. So up until 2015, you could say it was the commodity cycle that was actually weighing negatively in our economy, not the politics. But since then, it's clearly been politics, and politics ultimately boils down to sentiment. So when people see uncertainty, they see corruption, they see maladministration, you just don't spend money. So what the president has got to do is write the sentiment issue. If you just change sentiment where people are more positive about the outcome, then they'll spend money. And when people spend money, companies will see an increase in activity and they'll spend money. They'll build a new, they'll build a new factory or increase the size of their retail outlet, etc., etc. Or they won't pull out the country. Or they won't pull out the country. And, you know, with that you'll see probably some strengthening in the RAND stability. It's all to do with perception. Now, Unfortunately, this year, the first quarter is a complete catastrophe because of Eskom and load shedding and a few other factors, but those were the big ones. We're going to see a disastrous economic growth number for the first quarter. It could be as as bad as minus 2%. Now, that's also going to say, ooh, people are going to be worried about sentiment to say what's happening to the country. But if the state president continues to do what he is doing, and he has done a lot, but most importantly, in a week or 10 days' time, when he announces his new cabinet. On and the 28th. He, yeah, and he gets rid of all the tainted individuals and he puts in competent, honest people who are there to to do their best to do the job properly. It would go a massive way down the road to try and change the sentiment issue. And then, of course, the second one, and maybe even bigger, is Eskom. I mean, Eskom has the ability to sink the country. The debts are so big. And even with the tariff increases we've got, and tariff increases have gone, I mean, we all know this, 
the price of electricity has gone through the roof in the last 10 years. But even with all of those tariff increases and the government's, call it 100 billion rand injection over the next five years into ESCOM, it's not enough to even, not to even save it, just to keep it on an even keel. I mean, it is going bankrupt. At the end of the day, that is just not enough money to do it. So there's a few things the government's got to do. Is they've got to ensure stability of supply. Now, surprising enough, despite everything we think and uh, assume and read in the newspapers, stability of supply by Eskom is not impossible. In other words, there are a few things they've got to sort. They know what the problems are. It will cost money to sort it. But hopefully we get a stable supply in six months' time from you. Now, when I say stable, it doesn't mean you won't get load shedding, but it will never be load for, scheduled for. It would be very intermittent load shedding. And essentially the problems, the, the Eskom technical problems are quite simple. They neglected the old power stations. And the reason why is, so they were building new ones. And they say, when the new ones come on, we won't need the old ones anymore. So why spend money? doing proper maintenance on the old ones when we're going to close them in any case. And that's all very logical. The problem was the new ones didn't work the way they were supposed to work. So the new power stations are only operating at about 60% of design capacity. And to get it to 80 is relatively simple. I mean, I say simple, I mean it's achievable. And that is the problem with the new power stations is there's not enough steam to drive the turbines. And the reason why there's not enough steam is twofold. Number one, the boilers are too small. And secondly, the pipes are too small. Now, to fix the pipes is relatively easy. So that's a, that's a relatively easy one. And that will take utilization from 60% to 80% of capacity. To get into the 90s, you've got to change the boilers. Now, the reason why this happened is they had an engineer. Well, they, obviously, they had many, many engineers and teams who designed these boiler and steam delivery systems based on the quality of of that person's particular experience or that company's particular experience, it was in Australia. And there the coal's much cleaner. So you get far more thermal efficiency from Australian coal than you do South African coal. Mm -hmm. So they designed the boilers for Australian thermal efficient coal and they come here and they get dirty coal. And it just doesn't give you the same output. So therefore, the boilers and pipes are too small. For the turbines. But, you know, but what I'm trying to emphasize is, is it is a solvable problem. And to go from 60 to 80 is relatively simple in the bigger scheme of things. To go from 80 to 95 is a far more complex job. But if we can get to 80, we should put load shedding or the, the overwhelming majority of load shedding behind us. So that's technical ESKIM I think is solvable. Financial ESKIM is just I mean, it is a complete and utter mess. There's 440 billion rands worth of debt. There's no ways Eskom can meet their cash flow requirements, even with the even with the government's 23 billion rand a year input. So, you've got to do one of a few things or a combination of a few things. You've got to get fresh capital in. In other words, you've got to you've got to you've got to privatize something somewhere in the system. You've got to privatize it, and that's easy to do, by the way. Because privatization is just simply a discounting of cash flows. You can go to any financial organization and say, I, the government, via ESKIM, guarantee that I will buy X number of kilowatt hours of electricity from you 
at a set rate for the next five or ten years, and you can raise finance. And so it, it is, in fact, in effect, a financial operation more so than actually getting rid of parts of Eskom. So that can happen, and I think there's no option. It has to happen. It also appears as though the government must take some of Eskom's debt. They stand for Eskom in any Correct. case. Eskom mm-hmm. is seven levels, credit levels below junk status. So Eskom cannot raise a cent on its own balance sheet, not a brass farthing on its own balance sheet. It can only raise via the government guarantees. So it is government debt effectively in any case. So they must take some of the debt onto their balance sheet. The problem is the government's got no money, but let's put that aside for the moment. And they've got to convert some of that debt into equity because they they have got direct debt with Eskom. And about, must be about eight years ago, they converted about 70 billion rands worth of their loans to Eskom into equity, they've got to do that again. And then, of course, the third thing, which is what's scaring a lot of people, is are they going to reintroduce some form of prescribed investments where our pension funds are going to be forced to spend a proportion of your assets investing into government, well, Eskom debt. Now, of course, that's very symbolic, I mean, we all buy all of our pension funds own government debt already. Eh? We all own government bonds already. Absolutely. But to be forced to buy it is a psychological thing. So I don't think it will happen, but I think those rumors will persist for a while still. If you had to take the corruption element out of the picture, from the financial yes. picture, if it had to cease miraculously today, which I think a lot of it, the systemic stuff has come to an end. It's come to an end. Would it make any difference or have they really sunk it so low? Honestly, in the bigger scheme of things, it's not really the corruption that was the problem. It was the maladministration and incompetence more so. So in other words, just to be facetious, if the people were crooked, you wouldn't have minded so much if they were competent. <laughs> you know, so, so in the bigger scheme of things, it's not the corruption that's caused this it's the effect of maladministration and corruption that's been on the psyche of South Africans, i.e. coming back to this confidence issue. Now, I, I went to a presentation by uh, Praveen Gordon, and, I mean, he just said, someone asked him, how big is corruption? He said, pick a number. He said, 100 billion. Now, in the terms of our economy over a 10-year time period, it's actually the physical corruption. That's not the, 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 the death blow for our economy, it was the maladministration, but in, as I said a few times now, it was more the effect on uh, on your confidence that's caused this low economic growth. I mean, I work for a big bank. Big banks haven't grown their loan book in 10 years. Eh? It's been single-digit growth for 10 years. And in the last five years, you know, if you're a big bank, you're growing your book at – Lower lower rates than nominal than what the economy is growing by nominally. So you're growing your book by four percent. The economy is growing by six percent in nominal terms, i.e., before taking into account right. inflation. So you're, you're actually in effect going backwards, and that's been the case for a while now. And a lot of people will say, "Well, banks don't want to lend money." I mean, I, I've never believed that argument. It's our business to lend money because that's how we make profits. So it's not as though there are people hammering down the doors begging for loans and the banks don't want to give it out, there actually isn't that much demand. Okay. Coming back to what President Ramaphosa is actually doing right now, has the rot in ESCOM ceased? Has there been a purge of, yes, of those elements that have really created the problem? Yes. 
there has unquestionably there has been, and he's got all of these side technical task teams looking at the technicals. But the bottom is the problem. Bottom line is they are where they are, and now to fix the new power stations, I don't know. Once again, pick a number, fifty billion to fix these steam delivery problems. Maybe is a hundred billion. You must remember the power stations were supposed to cost in inflated rand terms, so in other words, using inflation in the numbers, were supposed to cost two hundred billion and take five years. They cost four hundred billion and took twelve years and they're still not working properly. So that's the underlying problem at, at, at Eskom as to why they're in so much debt. It wasn't the billion siphoned off with corruption and that. The things cost twice as much and took twice as long to bring to a 60% efficiency ratio than what they should have been. So it was actually project management, not the bribery and the corruption and and all of that. It was actually physical project management. And when the, when this started under President Mbeki, Eskom hadn't built a power station since the 70s. So there was very little project management skill left there. They didn't want to pay for a turnkey operation. They wanted to be involved in the project management and put, put cynicism aside for the moment. They wanted to do it because they wanted more South Africans involved in the building of. They didn't want to just pay Hatashi to say, or Alcatel to say, come here, build it, build a thing. We give you the check at the end and you go. They wanted to involve it because it was so big in our economy. They wanted to have a deeper penetration into the South African economy, which I suppose is a very worthy idealistic thing, but they couldn't do it. What is cost and in time? Do we have the skills now? No. We haven't got the skills in our technical oh to fix up these technical things, yes, they can get those skills. But if we don't have the skills in house, is the ANC open to the idea of bringing those skills in? Yes, they've in? already started that because they've already got these experts uh, these outside these teams outside of Eskom that province put in with outside technical experts to come and evaluate what's happening at Eskom and not relying on internal. So the picture is bleak. It's That's bleak. what it is. But there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. And we've got the right man at this point in time leading us or driving the project forward. Wayne McCurry from the FMB, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk at what a lot of people are asking about is their local investments. What yes. should they do? What should the outcome be? This is RV on Business. Welcome to 101.9 Chai FM. Or should I rather say welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. I hope you've been listening for the last 40 minutes. In the studio with me is Wayne McCurry from FNB. And Wayne, leading on from what we discussed mm. before, the whole ESCOM story, and really you laid it out very clearly and succinctly, people now simply want to say, I pay my retirement annuities every month for my pension and provident funds. I invest. I put money away. And when I look at it, I just see nothing. And then that old adage gets pulled out from the back yep. pocket. I would have been, I would have done better in the bank. And the answer is, yes, well, yes, you yes. would have done better in the bank, but that's saving as opposed to investing. Yeah. Maybe just take us okay. back. Why have we had flat returns and yeah. what do you expect going look, forward? Look, a few, a few, I suppose, hopefully, Statements that I think every investor should realize. When people say investing is long term, it's long term, eh? Don't evaluate it even on five years, maybe not even ten years. Okay. Now that's also used as an excuse for bad investment returns, but it is truly the, the, how the markets work. Secondly, markets give you ten years return in two years, eh? 
So the market doesn't go up gradually by 8% per year. It'll do nothing, and all of a sudden, one year, you'll get a corker, and it'll give you 30% in that year. And then that's your next 10 years' returns done and dusted. So that's just the way markets work. Okay, let's come back to the local situation. Our market's gone sideways more or less, less than cash returns for over five, six years now. Two factors. First of all, it was very expensive, you know, five, ten, five, six years ago, and now it's cheap. So, therefore, the valuation has changed. And, of course, we all know our economy has done nothing for 10 years. What should investors do now? Ignoring one particular aspect, which I'll come back to. Over time, you want the majority of your money exposed to global investments. It doesn't have to physically be overseas. There's lots of companies in our stock market that are global companies that you can buy. Simply because global economic prospects over time, global economic conditions, global alternative, global investment choice is just vastly superior to South Africa. Vast, it, it is vastly superior. And over 20-year long-time periods, global assets have done better than South African assets, full stop. Now, the one thing I, that I it said in, in the beginning we must ignore is – don't go, don't put all of your money overseas if you're living in South Africa and paying expenses in rands. Eh? So don't get a mismatch between your assets and liabilities. You must always remember that. And the best example is that 2002 to 2008, the U.S. share market did zero in dollars and our market did 300% in dollars. You know, so it's not always a case of the rand is a losing currency, blah, blah, blah. And that's why you've got to match your assets and liabilities. However, where we are now, because our market's done so badly, because South Africa has done so badly, because we had ex-President Zuma, because we had all of this uncertainty, a lot of South African assets are actually cheap. Now, it doesn't say our share market, because our share market is only probably 30-40% South African assets. So just think bank and retail. These shares are actually very, very cheap, and if as we were discussing earlier on, we do get an uptick in our economy because of what the state president's doing and sentiment changes and the RAND strengthens. These shares can do really well. I mean, they, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if everything works out correctly and the state president does all the right things and our sentiment changes, etc. wouldn't surprise me if these shares can do 30% in a year quickly. And which shares specifically are we talking well, about? Well, you can take about any of the major big banks except Capitec right. because Capitec is already expensive. Right. And then you can take virtually any retailer. You know, maybe Pick and Pay is a bit expensive. Maybe Clicks is a bit expensive. But you can take Mr. Price, Woolworths, ShopRite, can we put Spa. Dis- can we put Discam in there? You can put Discam in there. Discam has got its very unique set of circumstances in that maybe the share price shot up too much and has now come off. And maybe at these levels – the share price of Discam is not bad. It's not cheap. I think ShopRite's cheaper than Discam. But Discam's got a few very specific pros. They're about the only retailer who's expanding. They're the only guys who are opening up stores. Everyone else is shrinking the stores or actually closing stores. So they're growing stores. They've got an extremely loyal customer base. I don't quite understand it. But on the rare occasions where I've been to Discam, people look happy inside Discam. I, I don't understand it. You can feel happy buying your health supplements and medicines, but the customer looks happy, and it's always full. Thirdly, because of that very loyal customer base, they can expand their product range enormously. 
they can truly expand their product range enormously because they get they get feet into their shop. So then you start selling them as they've done cosmetics and then the next thing you start selling shoes and the next thing you sell clothes and then like clicks, you start selling toasters eventually. You know? Um so that's good. The negatives on Discam is they're still struggling to be a public listed company from being a private company. So there's still big family involvement there. And the market worries about this. You know, the best person for the job should be the best person for the job. You know, the best person for the job might not be the person who's related to the previous owner. It's now a public company. And this worries the market. I mean, we all know the circumstances. Uh, The founder's getting a bit old now. And is his son going to take over? Is it going to get a professional in? How is it going to work? So I think the company is struggling a little bit with a private family business is very different to a public company. Is this a deja company. vu to the pick and pay scenario? It's not dissimilar. And there's been a, there's been a few of them, pick and pay, yeah, okay. which had to eventually change. You know, it had to eventually change. So coming back to the bigger picture. Yeah. So, you know, these are the, these are the growth areas that we, that we can look forward to going forward. We hope, yes. Um, we're really running out of time, but the U.S. market's done well. The returns Correct. have been solid. Um, th- there's definitely there's been a lot of noise. CNN will somehow always try to underplay it, but the bottom line is it's been positive. This issue between Trump and China yeah. or America and China, is it a real issue no, or is it a politics. day-to-day politics? It's politics. Uh, President Trump, I hope, I pray, I think will settle simply because – if we get full-scale trade wars, and we let's just say we're 30% down the road towards 100% trade wars, it will damage the, it'll clearly damage the Chinese economy, but it will damage the U.S. economy as well. And no politician who wants to get re-elected is going to have a damage done to the economy that people can lay specifically on your doorstep. It's just not going to – no politician – will do that and fundamentally you know for all these faults and for all these detractors and everything donald trump might be the ultimate politician where he's just worried about his own survival more so than anything else in the whole world so i don't think he will do it but understand the u.s has had 10 years of highly unusual circumstances all supportive of the stock market in other words zero interest rates that doesn't happen often. So the stock market returns you've seen for the last 10 years in the U.S. Don't for a moment think that this is normal. It's actually highly abnormal. I'm not saying it's going to fall. or well, I'm not saying your returns won't be above U.S. inflation. But the returns in the last 10 years, because of the low interest rates and where you started, you started after a 45% fall in the market, have been abnormally high, for want of a better word. Wayne, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, just to wrap up, really what I want to discuss is just one or two particular South African shares because there's been a lot of questions about them, and uh, we'll wrap up from there. Thanks. Let's take a quick break. This is RV on Business. Wayne, Standard Bank. Yes. A household name, a company that's been around forever, a company that's seen a lot of changes in top management. Um, a company that's really embraced BE across the board, and yet people are starting to get a bit nervous because every time they go to the branch, it's not there anymore. There, yeah. What's going Look, on? Look, this is a this is a global thing, and it's not. It might be happening a little bit more publicly for Standard Bank, but every branch, every bank's closing branches, with the move to online, and new competitors in the market, 
They're still very small at the moment, Bank Zero, Time Bank, maybe Discovery at some stage. They're all very small, but they're gaining market share. But you and I do 95 or maybe 98% of our transaction online now. There's no need to go into a bank. You don't have to make a deposit. You don't have to draw out cash. So the banks have got to cut their retail footprint. So NetBank's already dropped from 700 to 500 branches. Standard Bank's announced their closing branches. First National Bank, NetBank, all closing branches, simply because of this move to online and the less need for people to go into a physical banking infrastructure to conduct banking service. So now, that doesn't mean every branch is going to close, by the way. Um, I had a discussion with NetBank a month or two ago, and they said they're quite comfortable for the time being at their 500 branches. The size of the branch is going to shrink, not necessarily the number anymore, but mm-hmm. the size is going to shrink because they see it now as sales outlets. It's not an admin center where you come and do banking transactions. It's where they try and get you in there to discuss a new loan, a motor car advance, services they can sell you, life insurance, investments. It's actually a sales branch. It's not actually an, an admin center anymore. I mean, certainly when I go into our bank's branch in the uh, the closest to where I am, it does two things. Number one, it does home affairs. Like you cannot <laughs> believe the queue goes out the door. But lucky I don't have to stand in that queue. But when you go inside the actual bank branch, you can't see the teller. There's no teller. You've got to go down the back opposite the toilets. Yes. There's the teller. So it's not a transactional thing. It's a service center. It's a sales center. So I don't think – look, the number of branches will probably continue to drop marginally. As I said, the footprint of the branch is going to shrink dramatically. But that's not indicative of an unhealthy banking market. No, not at all. It's, in fact, indicative of changing to essentially online. Of course, the biggest impact is going to be on the big – footprint retailer because right now online sales I mean it's hard to get an exact number but online sales is about eight percent of retail sales now that used to be done via a branch that used to be done via a a shop and so that's not going down that's only only going to go up there is a limit eh? we are still humans we like to go out and shop but maybe the limit's 20 or 25 percent so there's 25 percent less floor space that the big retailers need let's say, in 10 years' time. And a lot of the stores will actually become distribution centers where they will get all the products together to deliver to your house. It will be all just distribution. And who knows whether it's takealot.com or it's unlikely that it will be the retailer's own distribution that wins this battle. It will probably be the big distribution companies, Amazon, uh, takealot.com. South African logistics are... Light years behind overseas. Oh, there's no doubt. Light years. We are light years behind there, but we'll eventually get there. So, so the the people you actually got to worry about are all the property companies that own big shopping centres. What does that say for your REITs? Well, that's one of the things you got to worry about. Look, luckily enough, whenever I, I'm I'm inherently sceptical about fourth industrial revolution and new age talk and think because not because I don't believe it. I think ultimately the impact's bigger than what anyone estimates initially. But my skepticism is the amount of time it takes for that to actually happen is significantly longer than what people speculate. So lucky enough, you've got time on your side. Yeah, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But the retailers must adjust. 
So maybe a lot of the big shopping centers, a lot of the floor space there will become these logistics hubs where all the parcels will be accumulated for the online sales or where you might go there and to one place to collect your deliveries from 10 different suppliers. But, yes, that's one of the big things is the the demand for retail shopping center space in South Africa is not going to grow. In fact, it will probably shrink over the next 20 years, even if the economy picks up. But you reckon the economy is definitely on we our so. directory? We sincerely hope so. If the state president does the right thing and if President Trump doesn't go mad and if a lot of other ifs, if it all falls into place, yes, we can actually do quite well. Fantastic. Wayne McCurry from F&B, thank you so much for coming into studio. And once again, thank you for always being a friend of High FM. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons. Thanks everybody for listening. And we'll see you next week.